0: Welcome back, everybody. We're back with another episode of All the Hard Things. Um, I don't know where you all are at uh, or when you're listening to this, but right now we're rolling up on Thanksgiving um, and Christmas and some other uh, fun things going on this time of year. So I hope you all are well. Um, I know the holidays can, for whatever reason, for many of you, be difficult, triggering, bring up a lot of emotions. So I'm just thinking of you all, thinking of you all as we roll into this episode. Um, So today we're going to talk about the first of probably what will be a couple episodes of interventions and, and basically some things that could potentially be detrimental to treatment for OCD. So basically what doesn't work for OCD. So I think there are two distinctions here. One, I think that some of the things I'm gonna talk about are things that can just be not helpful. um so basically might contribute to feeling like you're spinning your wheels in treatment. um maybe just you know it doesn't really do any harm per se, but it it definitely doesn't help move you forward in any meaningful capacity. um and I'll go over kind of what those things are and and why they might be not helpful for OCD treatment. And then I'll also go over things that I think take it a step further. Um, things that are actually, I think could be detrimental to OCD treatment. So things that could actually be potentially harmful, um, or, or take you back or, or get you even further down that rabbit hole inadvertently or unintentionally. Um, and so with that said, I want to be very clear. Every time I give this talk, every time I talk about this, whether it's on a webinar that I've done for No CD or whether it's on my own social media, there's always an exception, right? So there's always someone out there who says, well, oh, I tried that and that really worked for me or you know, that's not exactly 100% true and I totally agree. Like I don't I don't think that any of these things are rules. I that's kind of what I live by, right? Like being an OCD therapist, I understand that nothing is 100% certain. Um, Even exposure and response prevention, even though it is the gold standard treatment for OCD, it's not the only um, good treatment for OCD. It's certainly not the only thing that has helped people. And even ERP is not perfect. There are lots of people who it hasn't been sufficient for, hasn't worked for, has been detrimental um, in some cases. So I'm just going into this chat knowing that, of course, those discrepancies exist. Of course, what I'm saying doesn't apply 100% to every single person. I'm, you know, I am understanding enough that obviously mental health is complicated. Human beings are complicated. What I'm saying, I believe really strongly is kind of a good general statement for the most part of people um, and their experiences with OCD. And I have lots of rationale to back all of those statements up. But with that said, of course, there are always exceptions to every rule. There's there's nothing here that is, you know, without exception. So if some of these things work for you, that's great. That's great. Take it and leave it, right? So, you know, eat the fruit, spit out the seeds, take what works for you, leave what doesn't. So what we are going to talk about today, we're going to shed light on what doesn't work when we treat OCD. So we're going to talk about things like talk therapy, relaxation techniques, challenging thoughts. Um, We're going to identify how some interventions, like I said, could be helpful. I mean, unhelpful and or detrimental. So things that can actually hinder progress or actually make it worse. Uh, We'll talk about how we can best help people who have obsessive compulsive disorder um, and some ways that we can kind of bolster those techniques. And then we're also going to go over some kind of treatment uh, roadblocks that I see pretty commonly. So I'm hopeful that by the end of the, the next few coming episodes, this will probably have to be broken up into a couple episodes, but that you'll be able to identify strategies and approaches that may be detrimental or unhelpful in treating OCD. Um kind of understand the rationale behind why, so hopefully I'm able to connect those dots for you, um, so you can see why some of these things might inhibit progress or deter progress, Uh, and I also just really want to make sure that you guys uh, have things to kind of replace that with, so if you have been doing any of these unhelpful or detrimental strategies, I want to give you something that you can kind of replace that with or go in the direction of. Um, But first things first, it's always really important for me to drive home the fact that it takes, on average, you know, studies differ from kind of the the range that we're thinking about or or that we have on file, but basically 10 to 17 years is pretty much what uh, the masses say as far as how long it generally takes people to get access to a proper OCD diagnosis and treatment from when they first started showing symptoms or characteristics that would be consistent with OCD. So. That's probably relevant to a lot of you who are listening, right? So a lot of you out there, it probably took you a really long time to understand what was going on, have a name for it finally get an OCD diagnosis, you know, sift through all those professionals who kind of, you know, needed to understand it and could identify it properly. Not to mention that additional hurdle of having to get the actual legitimate treatment for it, which is exposure and response prevention. So there are lots of barriers here. And I think one of those barriers is that people get kind of triaged or see the wrong type of therapist or specialist, which is, you know, the crux of what it is that we're going to be talking about throughout this episode. So in addition to that, OCD obviously is underdiagnosed. It's kind of underreported. Um, it's not easily recognized by other professionals. There's definitely a lack of access to care. Uh, you know, even in my experience as a, as a therapist in college and um, grad school, if I wanted that additional experience with OCD and anxiety, I had to go after it. I had to seek that out. So, you know, other professionals aren't given really thorough lectures about this stuff. They're not really in-depth educated when it comes to this. Um, I'm sure, again, there are exceptions, but for the most part, that leads to people getting triaged or um, getting referred to the wrong type of therapist or specialist. So what I see too often is an individual goes maybe to their primary care doctor or, uh, maybe they're OBGYN, a new parent, um, whoever they go and they reportedly struggle with anxiety, or maybe they even say that they believe they have OCD. They, they may or may not get that diagnosis. Who knows? Even if they do, um, they're kind of given this, this list of referrals. And so I think a lot of times they get the wrong therapist or the wrong intervention in general. So um, within these referrals, might be just kind of generic quote-unquote talk therapists. Uh, might be individuals who say that they have experience with OCD and exposure and response prevention, but they actually don't. Uh, might be people who Just kind of focus on cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you know, when I go even when I went to even find my own therapist, I went on Psychology Today um, just to, to search for obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety. And you get a ton of people who show up there and say that they are cognitive behavioral therapists. There's a lot that can fall under that umbrella. So just because someone says that they have experience with cognitive behavioral therapy or that they are a CBT therapist, it doesn't mean that they're experienced with OCD, and it doesn't mean that they have experience with exposure and response prevention. To take that a step further, just because they say they have experience with OCD and or exposure and response prevention, that's also not necessarily true. They might have worked with people who have OCD before, they might have done an exposure off the cuff with someone, but that doesn't mean that they'll actually be able to give you the high quality treatment and specialized treatment that you probably need. So it's really important to make sure that you have kind of a vetted therapist, that this is a legitimate referral, that this is someone who is specializing in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, who can apply exposure and response prevention, not just adequately, but really, really well, because that's what it takes. And that's what we deserve. so you've all heard me talk about exposure and response prevention. Um, if this is somehow your first episode with me, go back to my uh, main podcast page. You'll see tons and tons of episodes about what is exposure and response prevention, why it's the gold standard, um, lots of episodes that give you a really thorough, in-depth view of what that treatment is like and, and why it's so um, considered the gold standard treatment for OCD treatment. So um, we're gonna just hop right into kind of. The therapies are the techniques that kind of lack peer-reviewed effectiveness. Um, and if this, that, if those words kind of don't ring a bell to you, um, lacking peer-reviewed effectiveness, what that means is it's not uh, substantiated enough in the literature. So, you know, it's not you know shown to be an evidence-based practice. It's not shown to be an evidence-based intervention. It's not backed by years in years and years of science and research and hardcore studies, um, the way that exposure and response prevention is. So what we go for first, just again, the therapies and techniques that lack peer-reviewed effectiveness, in other words, just basically don't have any science or studies to back them up for OCD treatment, is cognitive therapy, okay? So cognitive therapy is basically when you challenge the content of the thoughts, So where you really sit down and there's a big emphasis on collecting evidence for whether something could happen or whether something could not happen. Um, So if someone is presenting to treatment with contamination concerns, for instance, a really thorough and, and specifically cognitive therapist would often challenge the uh collect evidence one way or the other so whether this thing was contaminated whether it was not contaminated um and basically help you probably try to arrive at some conclusive um you know understanding that this thing isn't contaminated and it's all fine um and i know that that's a generally very like wide spread over generalization of cognitive therapists and i'm sure there are some of them out there who are way more sophisticated than what i just said um I understand that. This is very generic here. Um, So with OCD, we do not want to challenge the content of the thoughts. So we do not want to, uh you know, collect evidence for what is contaminated and what's not. That's not helpful in the long run. And it can actually backfire because the unfortunate thing with trying to use logic with OCD is it doesn't work. (laughs) Um, So many people with OCD, unfortunately, they already recognize their thoughts are irrational. So sometimes by battling like one end or the other, you know, collecting evidence one way or another, they kind of get frustrated. They kind of get like, okay, I know that and I still have this issue. I know that that doesn't necessarily make logical sense and I'm still really struggling. So now what are we going to do with that? Um, So it can get frustrating for them and be quite invalidating in my experience. Um, I also always like to reiterate that OCD is the doubt disorder. So it's going to have you, no matter how much evidence you collect for why this thing isn't contaminated or why you aren't a pedophile or whatever, OCD is always going to have one more, but what if? So OCD is always going to find that teeny tiny little wedge of doubt and pummel you with it. So that's why logicing our way out of OCD doesn't work because there's always one more, but what if? And so when it comes to this technique, you know, generally challenging the content of the thoughts, um, I really, really encourage people to use it with caution, whether it's with themselves or with a therapist. Um, because for all the reasons, like I mentioned, it doesn't work. It might really temporarily feel helpful, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, but it's not going to be too much longer before that. But what if comes down the line? Um, and that to me feels a little bit like reassurance, right? So feels a little bit like a compulsion. So again, something that temporarily makes us feel better, but in the long run actually contributes to greater suffering and makes us feel worse. Um, so the way that I use these skills, um, if I go down this lane at all, it is solely as kind of a psychoeducation uh, mechanism. So I really do believe that there are distorted thinking patterns in OCD, right? So I believe and. In- Think it's important for people who have OCD to understand that they vastly will overestimate the probability of something bad happening, that their OCD will vastly overestimate predicting something bad is gonna happen, that they are more likely to catastrophize, kind of make mountains out of molehills, that they take more responsibility for their thoughts and for actions than they probably should. Um, and so I think that it's all good and well and and great actually to provide the person who has OCD with that education, that this is what your brain can do. This is the tendency that your OCD brain has to do, um, these tricks and kind of, this is why OCD kind of makes you feel like crap essentially, but I'm not going to sit there and actively go to bat, like battling and, and trying to identify evidence one way or the other. It just doesn't work. Your brain really needs the experience not the logic. It needs the experience of going through something anxiety provoking. And it needs that experience of your feared consequences not happening. Um, So it needs the experience of you touching this thing, believing that it might be contaminated and your worst fear is not coming true. Um, So with that, cognitive therapy is lacking peer-reviewed effectiveness for the treatment of OCD. Not to say that certain cognitive mechanisms and certain um, cognitive therapists, you know, can maybe work their magic in some way. I definitely do believe that there is a cognitive element to the treatment of OCD, 100%. I think that it's all about reframing your uh, relationship to the thoughts and your perceptions and and all of those things. But to sit there and challenge effortfully the content of the thoughts, that's not going to be helpful. It's going to backfire. If you or anyone you know is struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder or related conditions like skin picking, hair pulling, hoarding, tick disorders, or other body focused, repetitive behaviors, check out NoCD. NoCD is an online teletherapy platform offering specialized services and evidence-based treatments for obsessive compulsive disorder and related difficulties. You can meet with a therapist who specializes in your unique concerns and also get between-session support through messaging. We take insurance and also offer payment plans for those who self-pay. Available now in and out of the United States, check us out at www.nocd.com to get started. You can also download our free mobile app, which includes free therapy tools, an in-app community, and so much more. Know you are not alone, and go to www.nocd.com or download the Treat My OCD app on your phone to see how so many others are overcoming their OCD. You've got this. Um, So moving on, we have the big one, psychoanalysis or kind of what's called quote unquote, talk therapy. Um, And again, I'm being super generalistic here. This is usually where people get frustrated um, that there are lots of great therapists out there who do psychoanalysis and who call themselves just more generic kind of talk therapists. I've seen one before and they're great. They're really, really great. But when it comes to this in OCD, for the most part, it aggravates the OCD for a lot of different reasons. And we find that it's not helpful. And in, in some ways it can actually be harmful. So when it comes to OCD, people who have OCD really struggle with, one, the overimportance of thoughts, and two, the intolerance of uncertainty. So talk therapy, where you just kind of, uh, and again, this is so overgeneralized and someone's going to get upset. But when I think of talk therapy, When I, what I think of as far as like what I don't want for someone who has OCD, I do not want someone who has OCD to go and just talk about a lot of their problems with no structure, with a lot of non-judgment and, um, you know, just empathy. Like I, it's not a good situation for someone with OCD because it aggravates their over importance of thought. So people with OCD tend to have this over-importance of thought issue where they think that all of their thoughts are super, super important, um, that they need to focus in on all of their thoughts, why they have that thought, what those thoughts mean, so on and so forth. And the talk therapy can really aggravate that. So by continuing to talk about these thoughts and by continuing to talk about it and get curious about it and really like hammer in this thought and this experience, Consciously or not, we may be aggravating that over importance of thought issue, right? Like, well, what we want to teach people who have OCD is that actually their thoughts are not inherently bad and they're not inherently good. They are kind of what we make them. And we can have these thoughts and we can still move on and engage with our values. We can still move on and do the things that we want to do regardless of our thoughts, Um and so by doing just extensive talk therapy with lack of structure, um, no real kind of structured intervention of what actionably to do about that, I think it just aggravates that over importance of thought because we we continue to talk about it. So it must be important, right? I also think that it um, can just lead to a lot of verbal rumination. So you know, this is also why I don't necessarily like unstructured, like open-ended with no structure whatsoever journaling for OCD. Um, again, it might be helpful for some people. Um, and I love like structured journals. I love gratitude journals. I love all that stuff. But to me, just like a blank page, a blank journal, um, it's like a recipe for, you um, verbal rumination to occur, just verbal vomit of, of us trying, of the person with OCD trying to figure it out, using the therapist as a sounding board, potentially maybe trying to get reassurance from them. Um, and it also aggravates the intolerance of uncertainty that people who have OCD struggle with. Right. So, you know, I feel like, in talk therapy a lot of the goal is to like come to a satisfying conclusion about something or to like close a book in some way and that again just like feels very uh discrepant from what i would want someone in ocd who has ocd to experience um i want some actionable steps of course we can talk about things and of course you know if someone is really struggling and they feel like they just need a couple moments to like feel the feels and get it out i'm totally there for that um but again like the behavioral specialist in me, the OCD therapist in me wants some actionable plan. It wants us to jump into action. It wants me to say, okay, what are the rituals that are going on there? What are some, you know, safety behaviors that are going on there? How do we change this? How do we work with this in the future? So I really would need more actionable steps and like homework assignments and stuff like that than what we traditionally see um, in psychoanalysis and talk therapy. Some more therapies and techniques that lack peer-reviewed effectiveness, so thought-stopping. A lot of you might know this already, but anytime that you are engaging in thought-stopping, you might be doing something like, stop thinking about that, don't wanna think about that, don't wanna think about that. You know, whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant. If you think about a pink elephant, something bad is going to happen. And that's also just a recipe for more distress. And and there's going to be a rebound effect, which leads to more thoughts, more distress. Um, And so anytime that you engage in this thought stopping or thought suppression, you're basically reinforcing to your brain that this experience is threatening. You need to be on the lookout for it. Um... I always think of it, it's kind of the same way that we're not supposed to tell our kids, you know, stop hitting or, you know, no hitting. Uh, You're supposed to say like, be gentle or, you know, something else like that. So by saying stop hitting, right, like your intentions are good and and that is totally understandable and and we've all been there, but you're bringing attention to what it is that you don't want. Um, So that's some of the issues uh, when it comes to thought stopping. So we want to make sure that we're not engaging in that behavior. Another intervention or technique that lacks peer-reviewed effectiveness would be the uh, emotional freedom techniques. Technique. So um, it's also commonly referred to as tapping. So uh, we just basically need additional research to conform that these energy fields exist, right? So um, I'm a spiritual person. I'm into like how the universe has my back and Gabby Bernstein. I love her. Um And that's all faith-based, right? Like we, even with having faith in certain spiritual things, we can't be 100% sure that these things exist. Um, So when it comes to the emotional freedom technique and tapping, we basically just need more research to confirm that these energy fields exist and that we're working on these things in the first place. Um, And in addition to that, there's just no scientific connection to OCD or other disorders at this point, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um... This isn't based on any uh, research. It's kind of based on just like my own experiences. But what I what I can get on board with, with the emotional freedom technique is that it um, encourages you to kind of like stay with that difficulty, right? So it kind of encourages you to sit with that emotion. Um, You're not rushing to get rid of it. Um, If it does come down, that's very passive. Um, You're not actively trying to get rid of it. But You know, if if you've never heard of tapping before, it's kind of this experience where you tap different energy meridians and uh, different locations on your body and you say things like, I am feeling really awful right now. This horrible thing just happened to me. I am feeling really awful right now. And by by allowing yourself to feel those things i could get down with that um that seems kind of exposure-esque to me um but yeah as far as the tapping and stuff and the energy fields we just need more um we need more research and then we have animal and equine um assisted therapy so you know it might be enjoyable i when i used to work at rogers and the ocd um and anxiety residential recovery units uh we had animal therapy um, we often would take individuals to um, do assisted therapy with horses. Um, we had a therapy dog who would come every week, and it was great. It was a great experience. Um, you know, it brightened everybody's day to to be with the dog, and it was always something that everybody looked forward to. Um, so I have no issues with it. Of course, you can always kind of make exposures into that experience, right? So, if someone struggles with uh, thoughts or like sexual intrusive thoughts about animals, that's a a great, you know, two birds, one stone type of situation where you can certainly make this um, into an exposure situation for sure, but might be enjoyable. There's just no research support for obsessive compulsive disorder. So one of those things that I don't think is necessarily harmful, um, but we just don't have the research to kind of back it up just yet. Um, A couple more here before we wrap up. So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, aka EMDR. I get this all the time, all the time. This is probably the um, number one question um, as far as like alternate therapies that I get. So is EMDR effective for OCD? And the, the interesting thing is, is that there is some research to support um, EMDR in the treatment and reduction of OCD symptoms um, for OCD, but it's very preliminary. Um, even the language in all of these research studies will, will give you that sense that it's very preliminary, initial studies suggest, initial findings suggest, um, and so there are some out there. We're learning more about it, um, but when you compare it to exposure and response prevention, Exposure and response prevention has been around for years. The re the, the words that are used there with exposure and response prevention are conclusive, definitive, gold standard. So EMDR, again, if that's your thing and if you have found someone who feels like it's a good fit, just know that the findings are initial and preliminary versus conclusive, definitive, gold standard. My personal opinion on the whole thing, um don't know much about EMDR. Um, so I'm not going to claim to be an expert in EMDR, but, um, there was a really wonderful meme that I found. Um, someone had made it, it was not mine. Um, but there were essentially two twins. They were identical twins. Um, one looked like very plainly dressed, like professionally dressed, you know, black suit, like pretty straightforward, um, nothing fancy whatsoever. The twin immediately next to him was all dressed like very, um, kind of extravagantly with like a pink feather boa and a feathery hat and like these radical sunglasses, um, and just like very shiny and shimmery and like outlandish kind of dress that and the, the, the meme said like ERP versus EMDR. And I think that's Perfect. So that's exactly what is going on here, if you ask me personally. Um, I think what is helpful about EMDR is the exposure element. So, you are asking this person to sit with those discomforting experiences. You are asking that person to relive something, which is really not all that different from like imaginal exposures or um, like scripts, like, you know, anxiety provoking script work that we would do in exposure and response prevention. Um, so if you ask me, the meat and potatoes are the same. Um, it's an exposure element to it that makes EMDR effective. But there, with EMDR, obviously, there are some, some bells and whistles that might intrigue people a little bit more. Um, so like the bilateral stimulation, whether that's with lights or uh, fingers or anything else, um, I think some people are drawn to that, that it seems a little less hardcore than exposure and response prevention. Um, I think... EMDR, if you ask me, it is exposure and response prevention with a, a with some added sprinkles. Um, sprinkles don't really do anything. They're not really nutritional at all, um, but they make things fun. So so go for it. Just know that the research is initial, preliminary, it's not conclusive and definitive and gold standard, um, like what what it is that we're getting with exposure and response prevention. Two more interventions here that are just not uh, peer-reviewed as much as we would like for them to be. They're not shown to be effective in the literature. Life coaching. So the difficulty with life coaching, so if you work with like an anxiety coach or an OCD coach, just know that there's no governing body to determine if they're practicing ethically, okay? So when it comes to, at least in the United States, how it works, um, if you're a social worker or a licensed professional counselor, we have to go through rigorous training and retraining. We have to do continuing education. We have to continue to submit paperwork, and we have governing bodies that watch a lot of what we do um, to make sure that we are consistent and that we are following all of our rules and that we are doing no harm um, and that essentially we're doing great jobs. there's no governing body to determine that with life coaches so it's also really important to know that just because someone has lived experience with ocd it does not equal a qualified specializing professional so i know that working with a professional or you know working with someone who has lived experience with ocd that might be helpful for your journey um just know that's that's in my opinion it's just not enough it's not enough um it doesn't equate to all the training and all the specialization that we as therapists have had to go through to do what we do. Um, and the last one here is relaxation therapies. So, When it comes to relaxation therapies, um, these also are not peer-reviewed as far as effectiveness go. So uh, there are some studies that show symptom relief that uh, is is kind of achieved more slowly and with less durability, um, and it basically treats the symptoms, right? So relaxation therapies treat the symptom of anxiety. It doesn't actually treat the problem, which are the intrusive experiences and the misinterpretation of them. So, really important to, you know, remember in exposure and response prevention guys, we don't want you to have to do this relaxation therapy, right? We don't want you to have to actively relax yourself. We want you to allow yourself to feel the discomfort and witness that coming down naturally on its own without you having to do any compulsion, any relaxation, anything. We'll be back with another episode. Stay tuned for more. In the meanwhile, keep doing all the hard things. And next episode, we will jump into some other questionable interventions for OCD. Um, We'll get into benzodiazepines. We'll get into some other mistakes that I think therapists make often, Um, some other common pitfalls in exposure and response prevention and how you can kind of strengthen your exposure and response prevention treatment. So we have so much left to cover, you guys. Keep coming back and I will see you in a little bit.